Welcome everyone to the class tonight, all you who are here and those who are watching on the live stream. So this is week number nine. Remember next week we do not meet. We do not meet next week, that's the Thanksgiving break. And after that we have three more sessions, sessions 10, 11, and 12. So I hope everybody has the notes and uh, we'll begin. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your kindness and grace toward us in our Lord Jesus Christ for a redemption that we marvel at and we are thrilled to know that we have an eternal home with you, your Son, the Holy Spirit. Thankful, Father, for the grace you give us to live day by day and for the blessings you uh, graciously share and shower upon us. So help us this evening as we look again into your word that we might find ourselves submissive and uh, people who are willing to do the will of God. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so this is week nine. We're dealing with that public ministry, chapters one through 12. And uh, we uh, are here in chapter seven, beginning tonight. And this is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, and uh, when we finish that up, then Jesus will go back to Jerusalem and we'll enter into that final week of his uh, ministry. Yeah, this is week nine, so it should be over there. So uh, we saw the feeding of the 5,000 last week in Galilee. Jesus is at the height of his popularity and so forth, many followers. Remember in the Gospel of John, they're called disciples sometimes. Sometimes in the Bible, disciple just means sort of etymologically what it means, a follower or a learner, and not necessarily someone who is fully committed to Christ. Uh, remember we talked about, uh, when we talk about faith, there's actually three elements, you know, knowledge of something, assent, and then trust. And so there are people we will meet who will have those first two elements, but they've never really committed themselves which means they're not really regenerate. And we've got a lot of those people here in the Gospel of John that John calls attention to quite often. So uh, this is the feeding of the 5,000, and now we change uh, back to Jerusalem here. Notice this is at the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, so Jesus is at the Festival of Tabern uh, Tabernacles, and verse 1, remember I said uh, in Judaism there were three festivals each year that Jewish men were supposed to attend to, and one of these was the Feast of Tabernacles. Actually, families attended here. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, and then uh, we have a comma there and we'll go to verse 2. So we'll just look at the situation here and the timing here. Jesus spent about a year ministering in Galilee. He avoided Judea because the Jewish leaders 
were looking for a way to kill him. This is a reference to 518, where as a result of the Sabbath controversy, they tried to kill the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So remember the, the scene in five, chapter 5 was the healing of that lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And uh, they accused him of breaking the Sabbath there. And so he goes to Galilee. I say about six months after the feeding of the 5,000, the Jewish uh, festival of tabernacles drew near. This festival occurred annually in the month of Tishri. So uh, you can see um, we are here on this chart. If you can see on the chart there, we're in the fall of 8029. We're in the fall of 8029. So this is September, October. Um, remember the Jewish calendar is, is on a lunar calendar, not on our calendar of solar calendar. So it's, those dates vary. <clears throat> um, so uh, this is about six months. We're now about six months before Jesus' death and resurrection. As you can see by there, we're in the fall and the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension happens in the spring of AD 30 on this chronology here. Now this Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, B-O-T-H-S, it was designed to commemorate the um, wilderness experience of Israel, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and God's provision for them during that 40-year period. So it called upon them to remember that experience. Uh, the instructions are found in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's Leviticus. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, now this is before they have entered the land, obviously, uh, on the 15th day of the seventh month, that's this month of Tishri, so from the 15th day to the 21st day is this, fest this feast or festival of, of tabernacles. Uh, on the 15th day of the seventh day, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire, and on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present an offering to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly. Do no regular work. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day also is a day of rest. So these are Sabbath days. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths. Uh, of your, your, your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
Uh, so, as we said, this consisted of this seven-day festival beginning on the 15th day of the seventh month, followed by this eighth day observed as a Sabbath. Now, the people constructed uh, temporary huts. Um, here's a one in Israel, um, the kind they would construct today, in a sense, uh, these booths. Um, or at least the kind they, they, I'm sorry, the kind that they, they're representing, they think the Israelites constructed, something like what they might use today. Um, so there were these uh, leafy branches on the rooftops of these uh, roofs. Uh, they were along the roads, uh, and they lived them in these things during the festival. Um, I can still remember when I was a boy going to see my uh, aunt and uncle down in North Carolina. We were, uh, we had moved to Virginia then, but they were Methodists. And I remember in the summer they had, they had, they were sort of emulating that. They had, they had a a week in the summer where they would, they would come out and live in these temporary structures for a week, and they would you know, have preaching and, you know, it's, I guess it's sort of like a camp meeting in a sense, you know, but it was, I remember them talking about it sort of thinking like they were doing sort of what the Israelites were doing here uh, in this particular festival. Well, let's look at the advice of Jesus' brothers. Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So these brothers are the sons of Joseph and Mary, who were you know, younger than Jesus, born after uh, him, his half-brothers. This is, a, you know, of course, a problem for the Roman Catholic Church because they believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. She didn't have any children. So these see, they, they take a couple of ways to f- get around this problem of brothers. They say, well, they're really cousins. Of course, this is the word brother. It's not the word cousin or anything. So I'll say that. Sometimes they say, uh, these were children of Joseph before Mary. And these are older kind of half brothers and sisters. But there's no evidence of anything like that. Um, so, uh, it, it, the four of them were named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Of course, Judas is the, the book, the, Old, the New Testament book, book of Jude. You know, that's the, that's the one written by his half-brother. Uh, uh, even his brothers didn't believe, so they're unbelievers. They apparently didn't become believers until after the resurrection, in Acts 1, 13 and 14, it talks about the disciples after Jesus' ascension. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room. They went to this upper room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and I left out some other things, the other people who were mentioned. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So apparently they have been converted at this particular time, by, by then, by the time of the resurrection. 
Um, now, here, um, they, they, they ask, um, um, you know, they, 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 they say, you know, go to, uh, go, to uh, Galilee, go to Judea so everybody can see the works you do. And if you want to become a public figure, you don't act in secret. So they weren't believers in the, in the sense of regenerate, but it doesn't mean they didn't believe he was a miracle worker. You couldn't deny that. They could see he could do these great miracles. Well, hey, man, you're at the height of your popularity. Go to, go to Jerusalem. This is where you want to go to the capital and let people see you know, what you can do and so forth. Um, the problem is, of course, they, like others that we've seen, fail to see the significance of these miracles. They're not designed to draw attention to him just as a miracle worker, but to authenticate that he is the Son of God. They're a demonstration of who he is. That's the real purpose of them. They're not to sort of make him famous in a sense like that. Um, they may have been aware of many of the defections of his disciples in Galilee. Remember, we saw in Galilee that some of his disciples walked away. They left him when they didn't get any more miracle food and all that kind of stuff. And they may be saying, hey, take advantage of your popularity while you've got it. Uh, I mean, this is the way <laughs> it works in modern day culture. You know, if somebody becomes sort of famous, people will rush in, PR people, and say, hey, <laughs> capitalize on your fame while you can. Make some money off your fame. So that's the kind of thinking they apparently have here. Um, so I go to the religious headquarters, Jerusalem, perform some miracles, you know, and capitalize on your popularity. Perhaps, you know, it's not a lost cause. Even though there's people left you in Galilee, maybe you can still make something of this. The purpose of Jesus, verses 6 through 9. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So I say the judgment of Jesus' brothers about what he should do was faulty because in reality, it was what they would have done in that situation. But Jesus was following a different timetable of which they had no knowledge. Thus he says, my time is not yet here, for you any time will do. My time is not yet here means that Jesus, time for Jesus to go to the festival of the tabernacles is not yet here. So Jesus is operating with this divine timetable. Um, so his brothers could go. Uh, it's the festival. They have no messianic schedule to follow, and the world can't hate them. Uh, they're unbelievers at this point. They belong to the world. Uh, and as people of the world, they don't really understand the agenda, Jesus' agenda, what he's accomplishing, what he's trying to do here. But then Jesus does go. The arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, verses 10 through 13. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival of the Jewish leaders, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? 
Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So apparently I say the time came in God's plan and Jesus did go to the festival, but not in a very public way his brothers had in mind. Jesus is now leaving Galilee the last time before the cross. Apparently he arrives after the festival has already begun, according to verse 14. He does not go to the temple until the middle of the week. So we're told the Jewish leaders are searching for him undoubtedly for evil purposes. Um, but the crowds, including the Jews who came from Galilee and other areas, don't have such a harsh view of him. Some viewed his miracles and said, you know, he's a good man. He's doing these miracles. This is a good thing. Others thought he was a charlatan. You know, no, he's deceiving. He deceives the people. But anyway, the, the, the religious leaders had put a sort of a lid on the discussion. Don't talk about this guy. Don't, you know, don't, 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 uh, don't, make, don't say anything public about him. We're trying to tap down any discussion. So they, according to this, they kept their thoughts to themselves primarily. Well, the discussion during the festival, discussion with Jewish leaders, this is Jesus. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. Remember, the temple courts are this area surrounding the temple proper. I've got the area on the left is the temple court, but every, all that area around the temple proper are the temple courts, or sometimes called the courts of the Gentiles, you know. And that area in the back there where that uh, pillars are, that's sometimes called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Porch. You know, all that area people could go to, even Gentiles could go into that area uh, to the Jewish temple there. Um, um, I say here, Jesus began teaching in the temple sometime after his arrival in Jerusalem and ultimately enters into a discussion with the Jewish authorities. This is, uh, of course, the model in Jerusalem that we're showing here. That's <laughs> uh, very helpful anyway. Um, they were amazed at his teaching since he had never studied in one of the great rabbinical centers of learning. You know, how could someone who has never studied in these rabbinical centers under these rabbis, how could he have such a command of scripture? How could he have such a mastery of theological truth? That's unexplained. Remember later in the book of Acts, the religious leaders will have the same questions about the disciples, about Peter and John. Um, remember it says in the book of Acts chapter 4, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, then they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, it says. They were unschooled. They hadn't, means they couldn't read or write, but they hadn't been to the rabbinical schools. They hadn't been to the seminary or anything. So how did they get this knowledge? They were ordinary men. Uh, they weren't scholars. They weren't uh, scribes. Um, but it says there, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You know, they, they saw this same thing about Jesus. He was very well-schooled in the scriptures. Uh, and then these men, of course, after the resurrection are the same thing. Verse 16, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. 
Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. Nothing false about him. So Jesus learning here from verse 15, we learn Jesus says, comes from the one who sent him, a common way in the gospel to refer to the Father. Jesus claims his teaching comes from God, but, but uh, how does one verify the truthfulness of those claims? In verse 17, we learn there is a moral dimension to the problem. One must first be committed to doing God's will in order to know one must believe. Faith precedes knowledge. Um, this famous church father, Augustine, is credited with saying, I believe in order to understand. In other words, that's what it takes, you know. Um, to really understand the scriptures, you've got to be born again. I mean, you can get a superficial knowledge, you can understand the facts and all that, uh, but to really understand them, to really see the significance of them, how it all fits together, you have to be born again. Um, and he's talking here, he says uh, something that's, we develop, that's developed in the New Testament very clearly. Um, um, anyone who chooses to do the will of God, verse 17, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak my own. So a person who follows God and believes God will understand that this teaching is from God. Uh, the Holy Spirit imparts to us as believers an assurance that what we read in the Bible is God's Word. Um, it's, it's not a matter of willingness on our part. It's a matter of the Spirit imparting this to us. Theologians call this what's called self-authenticating. The scriptures are self-authenticate. They authenticate themselves. How does that happen? Well, it happens because uh, when, we, when we as regenerate people hear the voice of God, we recognize it. Think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God speaks to them. They don't have to say, you know, who are you? Why, what's, you know, what's going on here? They know it's God. But they're not brave people. They're not fallen people at that point. And that's what's true of us. Uh, remember, Paul says that, in that famous verse in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, the Scriptures. Their foolishness to Him can't understand them because they're discerned by the Spirit. So it's the Spirit who regenerates us. And at that point... Uh, gives us an assurance that what we are hearing and reading is the Word of God. It is true. It's genuine, you know. Uh, you know, when you think about Christian churches and the differences we have among evangelicals, differences in our own church about what we believe about things or what churches around us, fellow evangelical churches, believe, you know, Churches split over a lot of things. I've, I've known churches who split over the color of the carpet they're going to put in, whether they're going to buy a piano or an organ. You know, they, they split over all kinds of things. But they don't split over whether James is in the Bible, you know. 
when you come to Christ, you, don't, you may not know anything about the Bible or anything unless you were raised in a Christian home, and you get saved and you're given a Bible, <laughs> you don't know Genesis from Revelation maybe, you know, but as you read it, it's the Spirit who communicates that. We don't generally, you know, one of the questions you get in ministry is not people coming to you saying, hey, listen, I just don't think that book of Romans belongs in the Bible. And I've just never had anybody say that to me. You know, they just, there is, with a regenerate person, there comes this assurance that what we're reading is the Word of God. And that's what Jesus is saying about His Word. He's the, he's the Word of God, and He's saying these things. Regenerate people will recognize my Word, recognize the truth as I speak it. Verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet, one, yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? So, but these opponents of Jesus have not submitted themselves to God's will. It's not enough to know the law as these men did. They know it. They knew what the commandments, 619 commands and so forth. They had not truly kept it from the heart. Instead, they found a, way, found a variety of ways of skirting the real meaning, teaching of the law. And Jesus points to a proof that they have not submitted themselves to, to God's law because right in the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is you shall not commit murder. <laughs> and they want to murder Jesus, you know, for no justifiable reason. So they're, they're, they want to act contrary to their own law here. That's proof that they don't keep the law. Verse 20, they say, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? So they accuse him of you know, being demon-possessed. They think he's paranoid. They think he's insane. Jesus said uh, to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually he did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So I notice that the Jews were also inconsistent in their application of the law. At his previous visit to Jerusalem, Jesus had healed the lame man. I did one miracle. That work evoked astonishment. Not the astonishment that leads to praise, but the astonishment that someone would actually tell another to carry his mat on the Sabbath day. While they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, they, in a sense, broke the Sabbath when they circumcised a child on the Sabbath. Remember the law said that the male child has to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if that falls on the Sabbath, you can do that. But remember they had, we talked about all those regulations they had about what you can't do on the Sabbath, you know, and they had added two. The Old Testament seems to say you can't do your regular work. Just like we read in Leviticus, it talked about you can't do your regular work on this uh, Sabbath day. But they said you can't do anything, and they, they said you're breaking the Sabbath by rolling up even this mat. There's no indication that that was really, and certainly no indication that healing a person on the Sabbath is a violation of the Sabbath command. So, they concluded, the Jews concluded, it's okay to technically break the Sabbath, their own Sabbath regulations of, in other words, when God gave the Sabbath command and he gave the circumcision command, obviously God wasn't contradicting himself. He said, circumcise this child on the eighth day. 
it wasn't, it wasn't, God wasn't saying, God, God didn't intend that to be a breaking of the Sabbath. You know, he, we realize that's, that's not a breaking of the Sabbath. I was talking about doing regular work, not this ceremonial kind of thing that they were commanded to do. Um, so this healing of this, this man, this lame man we saw in John 5 is no more breaking the Sabbath than circumcising of a child on the Sabbath. But of course, they're falsely interpreting the law and they're trying to use it to brand Jesus as a lawbreaker. Then discussion with the people of Jerusalem. At this point, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from, and where, when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. So some of those who, were, who came from outside Jerusalem to the festival doubted if anyone was really trying to kill Jesus there in verse 20. He talked about that. The people of Jerusalem, that is the permanent residents, knew better. Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? They were in a better position to know what the Jewish authorities were really planning. They were surprised that Jesus spoke so courageously when it was well known that the leaders were plotting his death. Why, did Jesus, why had Jesus not been arrested? They flirt with the idea that the reason Jesus had not been arrested is that maybe the authorities have some fresh evidence of Jesus' messiahship. But no sooner has that this suggestion been made than it's dismissed. The reason is they are convinced that when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. So the religious leaders are clearly informed that Scripture predicted the Messiah's birthplace would be in Bethlehem. Uh, you know, based upon the Old Testament prophecy, Bethlehem will be the birthplace, and of course he was. Uh, and this was known even to ordinary people. Uh, we'll see in verses 41 and 42. They know the scriptures. Micah you know, says that this, he will be born in, in Bethlehem. Uh, what, what, is, what they're talking about here, but when they say, when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from, this appears to be some sort of uh, um, uh, local uh, current tradition, some sort of amount of local, but at least a current tradition, certainly not based on Scripture. The Scripture doesn't say anything about when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from, that is, or his, his origin will not be known. Scripture says just the opposite. He'd be born in Bethlehem. But there was a belief, we know from other literature, that, that Messiah would be unknown until Elijah came to anoint him. There was a tradition that says Elijah came to anoint him. There was a, there's an early Christian writer called Justin uh, writing about 150, AD 150. So, you know, 100 years or so after, 120 years after this. It's usually called Justin Martyr because he was martyred, Justin Martyr. And he writes, he has, a, he has a writing where he's dialoguing with a Jew named Trypho, Trypho the Jew. Um, and he's arguing back, you know, Justin's trying to prove that Jesus is the, was the Messiah. He was the genuine Messiah. And Trypho says to him at that time, well, um, if, the, uh, if the Messiah is born and exists, he is unknown. He's not known to anybody. So he's 
he's sort of reflecting that tradition we're reading here. So apparently that was some sort of a thing that was among the Jews, this idea, not an Old Testament idea. Um, and because these permanent residents of Jerusalem knew all about Jesus, they knew he came from Nazareth, because of course he was raised in Nazareth, but we know he's born in Bethlehem. They knew he came from Nazareth and he was in Capernaum. You know, they know that. Um, he lived in Capernaum. He couldn't be the Christ. We know that he couldn't be because we know where he came from. We know where he was born. Of course, what they know is false, but that's what they believe. Verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So either Jesus had supernatural knowledge of the people's discussion we just read, or he simply overheard it. We don't know how he, how he responds. He responds because he knows what they're saying somehow or another in the crowd there. Uh, in any case, Jesus does admit that the people of Jerusalem had a superficial knowledge of him. You know where I am from. But in reality, as unregenerate people, they did not know the Father and thus failed to understand Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. That he is not here on his own authority. So the one who sent Jesus is true, uh, which in this case means something like real. You know, the one who sent me uh, is true, that he is real. He's really the one who sent Jesus. Regardless of what you think, uh, you know, the one who sent me is real and genuine. He's, and that's, of course, the Father, regardless of what you may think about it. Verse 30, at this they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? As we've seen before, the people are divided when confronted with the claims of Jesus. Some of the Jerusalemites who had been disputing with Jesus tried to seize him. The reasons for their failure, the reason for their failure is because his hour had not yet come, may suggest they were divinely restrained. We don't know that. It just says um, they, they didn't lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We don't know whether this is providential. God is arranging, arranged for Jesus to slip away, or whether this was a miraculous restraining. It's not clear to us as it is on some of these things in John. Um, but others put their faith in him because of the undeniable miracles they had seen or heard about. But as we have talked about many times before, a number of times before, faith based on miracles is not strongly encouraged, though it's better than nothing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> belief based on miracles is, is a start. It's better than no faith at all, but it's not necessarily regenerate uh, and so forth. You know, it's probably like people who come to these modern-day faith healers, you know. They come because of the miracles. It doesn't necessarily mean they are regenerate, you know, or, or anything like that. They're desperate people, as we can understand. They're, they're looking for any hope at this particular time. Um, so we're not told whether this faith is, is genuine, uh, 
the, the, the Old Testament does not directly teach that, Mo, that the Messiah would perform miracles. There's no verse that says Messiah would perform miracles. But this may be implied by the fact that, you know, remember back, we talked about that verse, Deuteronomy 18:15, where Moses said, the Lord will send you another prophet like me, you know, like me, which is a prediction of the Messiah. And, if, you know, if Moses performed miracles, then it may have been naturally assumed that, that this prophet would. And that's genuine, true. Moses did these miracles to authenticate who he was, a spokesman from God, and Jesus is doing these miracles primarily to authenticate who he is, who he claims to be, that he is who he claims to be. Now we see some discussion with the officers. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. When the whispered and tentative faith of those described in verse 31 reached the ears of the Pharisees and the chief priests, legal steps were taken by the authorities to have Jesus arrested. And so they sent the temple guards. Now these temple guards were uh, part of what we call the Levitical police force. Remember there's the tribe of Levi. And you know, part of that tribe are descendants of Aaron. So they are the actual priest officiating uh, in the temple. But these other Levites, some of them formed what's called this Levitical police force that really uh, were armed people who, who, uh, who uh, guarded the temple and watched over the temple area and controlled the temple. They policed the temple. Um, they had a, an official in charge who's called the captain of the temple, car, uh, temple guard. Acts chapter 6 talks about the high priest and the captain of the temple guard because we see these temple guards in the book of Acts. We see them later mentioned in the book of Matthew because remember the Jews come to Pilate and they say, listen, this deceiver said that uh, he's going to, you know, he's, when he dies, he's going to be raised in three days. And we know what's going to happen. His followers are going to steal his body from that tomb. They're going to steal it and say he rose from the dead. So Pilate put some Romans, put some soldiers out there and, uh, you know, guard that place. And they say, uh, and, and Pilate says, uh, <laughs> it depends on which translation it's, it says, uh, because the word in Greek can mean either one of these two things. It either means take a guard, take some soldiers, or you have some soldiers. It seems hard to believe that the same word, ekatek, could mean both of them, but it can be an uh, imperative command or it can be just a statement of fact. And some translations say uh, take a guard, and some say you have a guard, you have some soldiers. I'm convinced that you have some soldiers uh, because Pilate doesn't want to send any soldiers out there. And besides, we know it's clear to their soldiers because later on, you know, when Jesus is not found in the tomb, the religious authorities tell these soldiers, hey, listen, uh, uh, tell, 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 the, tell Pilate that you fell asleep uh, <laughs> and they came and stole his body while you fell asleep. Well, that would be, that would be automatic death to a Roman soldier. You know, no Roman soldier is going to say, oh, yeah, we'll just say we fell asleep 
That'll go over good, you know. <laughs> now, this is, uh, these are what called Levitical police force, and uh, they're Levites who are, who are guarding the temple, and they have control. The Romans gave them control of the temple mount, the temple area. They, didn't, they, let, them, they let the Sanhedrin really sort of govern the Jews, you know, until it came to capital punishment, things like that. So these, uh, they had the Levitical police force. The captain of the temple guard was usually the high priest's son. So the high priest, then his son was the captain of the, of the Levitical police force. And when the high priest died, the captain of the temple guard became the high priest. This happens in the New Testament. Uh, so um, this captain is, 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 is second in command. And so they're going to send these guards and arrest him and so forth. Verse 33, Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. At the moment, the officers are seeking an appropriate time to arrest him. Jesus announces his coming departure to the Father and the inability of his enemies to find him. Of course, his death would, remain a, would mean a return to, the, to glory he had with the Father before the world began. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. So as we've seen before, Jesus' words are again misunderstood. The Jews, however, sneer at the statement because they could not believe that Jesus would go somewhere they could not find him. They interpreted his words, therefore, he must be, he's going to leave the country. Uh, he's going to go out into this, one of these areas. So this is uh, what's called the diaspora, the diaspora of the Jews. That is, the Old Testament is set up the law of Moses is set up so that you have to live in the land of Israel because the temple's there. <laughs> the tabernacle is there. The temple's there. If you want to be a good Jew, you've got to offer these sacrifices and stuff like that, right? And so it, uh, the Old Testament doesn't really comprehend or have a situation where Jews are living anywhere they want to live. They've got to live in the land. But things happen. The Assyrian captivity happened. The Babylonian captivity so Jews stayed in Babylon. They stayed in other places. The Greeks come in. They're scattered there. So those are just those red dots are just places where there were Jewish populations that we know about. And we know Paul when he goes on his missionary journeys. You know, he goes to these Gentile areas, but he finds a synagogue. He finds Gentiles living there, and so forth. And these Gentiles uh, living there, these Jews living there, try to follow Jewish tradition and so forth and so on. Uh, and so they think, well, is he, he's going to leave and we can't find him. Maybe he's going to go out among somewhere on the diaspora and kind of teach these Jews who are living out in that place. Um, of course, those of us you know, who know what's happening know this is not what he meant. Events on the last day of the festival, 737 through 52. First, the invitation by Jesus. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
Since this is the last day of the festival, we have apparently moved to a later time than the events of the preceding verses. On each of the seven days of the festival, water would be brought by priests from the pool of Siloam to the temple to be poured out before the Lord on the altar of burnt offerings at the time of the morning sacrifice. These ceremonies were related in Jewish thinking to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the future pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. So, here's uh, kind of the preparations that the Jews have followed over the years uh, and still do today. Now, not everybody in Israel does this kind of stuff. Remember, about 10% of the population of Israel are Orthodox Jews or ultra-Orthodox Jews. Most Jews in Israel are secular Jews. They're secular. They don't really... They don't, they're, the only connection they have with Judaism is just a cultural tradition. They, they're Jews. They, they believe in Israel and all that, but they don't have much use for the Orthodox religion and, or that kind of thing. So not everybody would engage in this kind of thing, but the Orthodox in Israel sort of control, have a lot of control, and so the government uh, bends to their ideas and follows their, tries to follow... They have Sabbath laws, and they, you know, they try to follow the, the traditions there. But remember Netanyahu, the former prime minister, he was not an Orthodox Jew, or <laughs> he wasn't really. But he has to be sort of quote, you know, because he's the president, he's the prime minister of Israel, but not really an Orthodox Jew. Uh, so, festively dressed pilgrims leave their booths at dawn, carrying branches bound together. Uh, and a citron. So uh, the, the Jews uh, live in these, you know, they, they, they sleep in these booths and then they leave at dawn. The group divides. Some attend the morning sacrifice. Some cut willow branches. Some follow the priest to the pool of Siloam. The priests fill a golden pitcher with water at the pool of Siloam and lead the procession back up the hill to the temple. This is apparently what they did. Uh, Moses said concerning the Feast of Tabernacles, on the first day you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches, poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. The Jewish people interpreted, have interpreted these four species to be the citron, the fruit, the palm branches, palm fronds, myrtle branches, leafy, that's the leafy branch, and willow branches, the poplars. Worshippers carry these with them to their prayers in the synagogues throughout the week. So this is the kind of thing. Here's, here's a, a guy who's holding the citron, that yellow thing, and then he's holding these different uh, things prescribed here in Leviticus. And uh, here, here he is at the Western Wall at the, the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, here's that uh, drawing of Jerusalem again. And uh, so the priests go from the temple there, of the Gentiles, the temple properly, and they go down south to that uh, pool of Siloam, the Siloam pool there. If you can see, it's in the blue down at the bottom down there, down at the very bottom, Siloam pool. So they go down there and get this water and so forth, um, um, and then bring it back and pour it on the altar. So they take this trick and then they come back up. 
here's that model again. So you can see the pool of Siloam down there at the bottom. That's how it's represented on the model. Um, we were talking about the pool of Bethesda north of the temple previously, remember, with the healing of that lame man in John 5. But this is the, this is, so they're, they're going out this southern gate here. Um, here's, this, here's the, and bring my Arabic, but you can see the exits and entrances here. Um, this is the main entrance to the temple, entrance and exit to the temple. You go in here and you go up some steps up to the temple courts is how it worked. But they would travel down there, as we saw in the drawing, down to the pool of Siloam and get that water and bring it back each day. So uh, this is what it looks like today. Uh, this, is, this is the route today going from the temple. Now, where the temple stood is what's called the Dome of the Rock, right? That golden dome thing there. Um, that's not a mosque, that's just a memorial to Muhammad because this is where, according to Islam, he took his, he sent it into heaven. Uh, according to Islam, he made a night journey and, and, and a night journey flew on this beast to Jerusalem and then he ascended from there up to heaven. Now the Quran doesn't say, doesn't name Jerusalem as a city, remember that? The Quran doesn't say anything. The Quran doesn't mention Jerusalem. But through later tradition, it's been interpreted as being Jerusalem. So this is called the third holiest site in Islam, Jerusalem is. That's why they fight about it, you know, obviously today. And the Temple Mount is controlled by technically the government of Jordan under a administration there. And the Israelites sort of let them have it. <laughs> they let them control it. Unfortunately, they sometimes they're doing some things that are dangerous, that, that are unfortunate archaeologically. Some years ago, they dug up this corner, um, this southeast corner down here. Here's north up here. This corner, they dug up this corner over here and just dumped all this earth out, you know, just dumped it out, everything. And so they destroyed a lot of archaeological evidence, and there's been a project in Israel to sift through that dirt for the last four or five years. Uh, and they sift through that, and they find things. And you'll see, notice about, they found a coin, they found this signet ring, they found this from, from the previous era. Because the ancients built on top of each other. They just kept building on top. So this present uh, platform is built on top of the ancient platform of, the, of Herod. But the Dome of the Rock sets approximately where the temple would be. So they would travel down here to the Pool of Siloam. And that's how this model represented it. Of course, we don't know what it was really like. Well, we know now, but... So notice that A and B. A and B. Keep that A and B in mind there. Those are two different possible locations for the Pool of Siloam. Now, we used to think it was A. I say we, the archaeologists thought it was A. And when Pansy and I were in Israel, that's where they took us to A. <laughs> we thought that was it. But since we were there, they, they were doing some excavations. A lot of, when they do excavations in Israel, you have to have an archaeologist there to, to watch and monitor. And they found the real pool of Siloam. I'll show it to you in a moment here. So here's A. When Pansy and I were here, this is where we... Actually... 
we came out more behind that gate because this is, after that is Hezekiah's tunnel. This pool is fed by a, by a spring outside Jerusalem, a Gihon spring. There's a spring outside. And when the Assyrians attacked, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah dug a tunnel, had a tunnel dug 1,700 foot between the Gihon spring and this pool to bring water into Jerusalem. And when we were on our tour, we, we walked through that uh, tunnel there. You can, you can walk through it. The water is up to about your, sometimes to your knees and so forth and so on. You walk through there and you come out here. And so this is really the Byzantine. So Byzantine period is, you know, from about 500, well, it really goes to 1493. But when, when Christians controlled Jerusalem, when the Roman Empire became Christian, Constant, when Constantine, uh, you know, uh, accepted Christianity, his mother came to Jerusalem, and they started building churches in Jerusalem and so forth. And, and ultimately, this was the Pool of Siloam. It's fed by the spring of Gihon. This is, this is how it was. This was the pool during the period, so it's from 300 on forward. But they started doing excavations here, and I, I didn't show a picture up here, but right to the left where those trees are, there's a road there. So you can't dig any further than that. There's a main road south of the temple there. But when they dug up, they found, they were doing some water projects in Israel, and they found, here are the steps down to the Pool of Siloam. They know that now. They're very close to each other. They're fed. They would have been fed. So the water was diverted to that other pool, you know. And so, uh, you know, Jerusalem has changed a lot over the <laughs> couple thousand years, you know. So this is the real Pool of Siloam here. That's that, that uh, B site we talked about. We know that to be now. Um, so the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam. They'd come back to the temple and uh, they would pour water there on the altar. You can see there's the temple courts on both sides. Uh, you can see the first gate is the court of the women where women could go. And then, the, then through the next gate is the court of Israel, the court of men, uh, and the altar there. Only the priests could actually go into the temple proper, the holy place and the holy of holies. So they would come up and pour water on that uh, altar there each day. Here's what the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles looks like in Israel today. This is the western wall of the temple, so... I don't think I can go back here. I don't know how to go back, but so this is uh, this is this is about the closest Jews can get to the temple as religious Jews. Um, that's that western wall of the temple. Um, those large stones at the bottom are actual stones from Herod's rebuilding of the temple. Very large stones, as big as a bus. Um, so this is. Uh, where they come, you know, to pray on a daily basis. This, uh, this thing to the right there uh, over here is how you get up to the temple, how you're allowed, you know, visitors are allowed to get up here if you can get up there to the temple, you know. And so uh, it can, sometimes they close that off, sometimes you can't get up there. You can only go up there as a tourist, supposedly. You can't go in a religious sense. You can't bring a Bible. You're not supposed to bring a Bible up there. 
uh, when we went up there, they, the God said, don't bring your Bible today when you go to the temple because they're going to search, they might search your stuff and so forth. And um, did y'all go to the Temple Mount when you did, you've been to the Temple Mount? Did you feel uncomfortable there or not? Okay, well, we felt a little, they were people watching, so they, they're watching you and what you're doing. Now, just recently this year, um, there are pictures of Jewish men praying at the temple, praying, praying on the Temple Mount. And that's never been allowed. And it hasn't caused any kind of rioting yet, but there are pictures of Jewish men going up there praying. And that's never been allowed. That's why they, have, they go to the Western Wall and they pray down there. So, uh, so these water rites, going down to the Pool of Siloam, taking the water back, occurred on the first seven days. The eighth day was the Sabbath. So when it talks here about uh, on the last and greatest day of the festival, we don't know whether this is the seventh day, the last day of the festival, or the eighth day. That We don't know which day exactly it is here. But Jesus says, uh, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I say the rivers of living water that flow from within them refer to, refers to the believer. Uh, refer to the believer. Um, the phrase from within them refers to the fact that believers there would issue... Uh, that from believers there would issue spiritual blessings upon others. This may be implied in 414, remember with a woman of Samaria, where the living waters given to the believer becomes a rich, a, a spring which bumbles, bubbles up. Uh, remember Jesus tells the woman at Samaria, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And 1417 later, Jesus says, The Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him lives in you and will be in you. And so that might be the reference here in the sense of um, from us who have the Spirit, spiritual blessings will flow as we communicate the gospel, as we uh, minister to people, help people, and so forth, that kind of thing. Uh, no particular passage of the Old Testament mentions rivers of living water will flow. Um, uh, it, may be, it may be a couple of, there's some passages that may allude to it. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. It's sort of like that. Isaiah 58, 11, For I will pour water on thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. So that might be the kind of thing that Jesus is alluding to here in this situation. Verse 39, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. In case we should miss it, the evangelist now interprets the real meaning by this he meant of Jesus' metaphor, of the rivers of living water. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given in the full Christian sense. So after his death and he returns to heaven, Jesus would send the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, as we know, to empower 
and gift believers <laughs> to empower us, to gift us spiritual gifts so that, uh, so that rivers of living water is going to flow. That is, these spiritual gifts will, will be able to be used to help others, to bless others, and so <coughs> forth. Um, so, you know, here at CBC, we believe what the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians about every person has a gift, but I think it's universal here. <laughs> Sometimes I, I, don't, I haven't polled, polled everybody. I know what Ken believes on this. I assume what Larry, I don't know what Larry believes. We'll have to ask him after. But, you know, there's some question about the spiritual gift list in 1 Corinthians. Are they exhaustive or not? I don't think they're exhaustive. I think they're just some of the gifts. They're the kinds of gifts because he talks about other things after that. And so we don't uh, assume that they're, that, they're, uh, that they're exhausted. They identify all the gifts. So what we try to do is uh, talk to people and ask them, what, what, are you, what can you do? What are you good at? What do you enjoy ministering? What kind of abilities do you have? and try to plug them in. And that's Larry's job back there. He's the plug-in guy who <laughs> tries to plug people in. So we just try to find out how God has providentially prepared people and you know, find a place of service that fits with their gifts and their personality. Well, I guess it's 8.17, so we better stop here. We will uh, not meet next week, remember? but we will uh, should meet in 2 weeks thank you very much